Shalom everyone. Our chapter, Lamed Vav of Yeshayahu, 56 of Isaiah, is short, but is filled with so much. I'd like to start by reading some commentary from Robert Alter's translation of the Tanakh. As we've been learning the book, we've mentioned the claim that it's a composite work of more than one author, even though, as Harris pointed out several weeks ago now, from at least the time of the Dead Sea Scrolls, they were joined. Chapter 40 is generally considered to mark the move from Isaiah ben Amotz, who prophesies during the times of Uziah and Chizkiyahu, to second Isaiah, who discusses the Persian ruler Cyrus, and thus likely lived during the time after Judah had already been exiled. But now we're apparently reading what is known as third Isaiah. Alta says that it's a strong consensus of biblical scholarship with only a few dissenters that Isaiah 56 to 66 is a later composition than Isaiah 40 to 55, and almost certainly the work of more than one prophet. The frequent allusions to the imminent Persian conquest of Babylonia in chapters 40 to 55 enable us to date it, or at least much of it, to the time just before the conquest in 539 BCE. The situation presupposed in chapters 56 to 66 is of the exiles already returned to their homeland. There are no further prophecies of the people triumphantly crossing the desert to Zion. And the issues engaged are the behavior of the people in their land and the nature of the community they constitute. The probable period for these prophecies is the early decades of the fifth century BCE, before the arrival from Babylonia of Ezra and Nehemiah in the middle of the century. And those responsible for these texts appear to have been familiar with Second Isaiah, but the often asserted claim that they were his disciples seems a little off the mark because they were separated from him by at least two generations. That's Alta. And I'd add as a footnote that if indeed we're talking about the early decades of the fifth century BCE, it's more or less around the same time that a parallel story is taking place in Shushan, one that involves Hashverosh, Haman, Esther, and Mordechai. That story is thought to take place, at least by some, around 480 BCE. And in the context of the time, perhaps we could reframe the focus of this chapter as follows. How does a people which has recently returned to its land after exile, and here we can actually add, at a time where the majority of its diaspora, certainly the elites, stay where they are, how can such a people create strength and resilience and successfully reconstitute itself as a religious or national community? The first answer, I'd argue, is to make sure those on the periphery of society do not get left behind, that we ensure we are inclusive to those who seek to join the community and whom buy into its values. In our chapter, God relates to two groups, the Saris, the eunuch, and the Ger, the foreigner. Let not the foreigner say, who joins the Lord, saying, the Lord has kept me apart from his people, nor let the eunuch say, why am I a withered tree? For thus says the Lord, of the eunuchs that keep my Shabbat and choose what I desire and hold fast to my covenant, 
I will give them in my house and within my walls a marker and a name better than sons and daughters. An everlasting name will I give them that shall not be cut off. And the foreigners who join the Lord to serve him and to love the Lord's name to become servants to him, I will bring them to my holy mountain and give them joy in my house of prayer. Seth Farber, the founder of Itim, asks why it is that these two groups are specifically mentioned and answers that people lose hope for two reasons. Either they feel they don't have a shared past with the society in which they live, the gare, or they feel they don't have a shared future with the society, the Cerise, who won't be able to have children. Father adds, you want to change the world and bring redemption? Make sure no one gets left behind. You have the ability and the power to create both a past and a future for those around you. How else? Does a recently reconstituted community returning to its land from exile create resilience and strength? Well, it also has to commit to key principles and values based around justice. There's a discussion in Tractate Makot 24a, which seeks to drill down into the core principles of the 613 mitzvot. The Gemara explains, using a quote from Tehillim, that King David came and reduced everything to 11 principles. Then Isaiah, perhaps first Isaiah for our purposes, it's in chapter 33, reduces it to six principles. The Gemara relates that the prophet Micha subsequently reduces everything to three principles, to do, to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly before one's God. The Gemara continues with quotes from Amos, who has one principle, seek me and live, and also the prophet Habakkuk, who says, the righteous shall live by his faith. But before then, we have another quote from Isaiah, perhaps for our purposes, third Isaiah, which is taken from the beginning of our chapter, in which the prophet drills down everything to two principles, Ko Amar Hashem, Shamu Mishpat Vasut Staka. So says the Lord, keep justice and do righteousness. We shouldn't be surprised by this. It's long been a refrain of the prophets that tzedek and mishpat are key. It's also the way of Avraham. If a religious or national community is to survive, it must be guided by these principles. But I also want to relate back to something Seth Farber writes in terms of creating a shared past and shared future, particularly as it relates to us today. In verse 5, which we've read already, when discussing what he shall provide to the eunuchs, those people who have lost hope and believe they have no future, God says, V'natati lahem b'veti u'v'chomotai yad v'ashem tov mibanim u'mibanot shem olam eten lo karet To them I will give in my house and within my walls a yad v'ashem, a monument or a marker and a name that is better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting memorial that shall not be cut off. The modern idea for what would become Yad Vashem, commemorating victims of the Holocaust, was first suggested in September 1942 by Mordechai Shenhavi, 
a founder of the Hashomer Hatzair youth movement and a member of Kibbutz Mishmar Emek. When Shinhavi began hearing reports of the Nazi horrors, he was haunted by visions. Later testifying to members of the National Committee in 1946, he related that, here I see in a dream all those millions, at the time I didn't know it was six million, millions walking with monuments on their shoulders facing Zion. And they chose one place and each one removed the monument from his shoulder and placed it in an orderly and disorderly fashion. And the monument of their lives was constructed. It was a kilometre long and a kilometre wide and a hundred metres high. Maybe that was enough. Who can say there's no room to build such a monument? To those who've lost hope, those who feel they have no future, God will provide a Yad Vashem. And inspired by this, perhaps we need to create and provide for ourselves a deep understanding and memory of the past, of what people went through. But what about a vision for the future? In verse 7, much said and sung during Slichot and during the Aseret Yemei Teshuvah between Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, we read that God relates to the stranger and promises v'haviotim el har kodshi simachtim bevet filati olotehem v'zivchehem l'ratzon al mizbechi. I will bring them to my holy mountain and give them joy in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and sacrifices shall be welcome on my altar. And then God concludes with a vision that certainly for myself as a Jerusalemite, I think should guide us in our own relatively recently reconstituted community in our historic homeland. For my house, a house of prayer, shall be called for all the peoples. Wishing everyone a great day.